Hi, this is the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending April 17. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear us, will you hear um, Jez's dog Lloyd barking in the background, hopefully there. I'm capturing him. It's very in the moment. Uh, And also, uh, you'll hear us talking about our gardening exploits. We're all in lockdown and gardening more, especially Jez and her um, fierce fights with Agapanthers. Uh, And also, we went into a bit of a fantasy world and had a chat about what we would do if we had an hour off restrictions at the moment. Uh, Also, we chatted to Kate Tawney, the CEO of State Library of Victoria, to talk about what's accessible online at the State Library. Uh, Also, hello, Lloyd. And um, (laughs) Birdman, uh, Sean the Birdman Dooley, talked to us about birds. Uh, Alice Jury checked in with us. She's a senior lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre and brought us up to speed on the AFP rates and the recent High Court ruling in regards to the rating of News Corp journalists. And Wayne Blair, director of a new season of Mystery Road as well. Triple R. I know a lot of people are um, trying new things uh, achieving things like people uh, like making pasta, bread, things like that. Um, I don't want to brag, but I will. And uh, we've made we made soil. Oh, yeah. And by we, I mean Kath mostly. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make? I don't even know that was a thing you could do. How do you make soil? I know, right? I neither did I. Like it was, but it makes sense. Like, oh, you know, instead of going to, you know, somewhere to buy bags of soil to start a garden bed, um, we we she did it herself. So, um, basically, uh, we built a garden bed, um, and then filled that uh, with, oh, put some. Um, uh, horse manure in there, uh, so you had horse poo, and then put mulch over the top, um, and then uh, and then kind of you just let that sit, and then like the mulch and stuff all, you know, and the or maybe the horse poo, maybe she did the horse poo on top. The oh, anyway, I don't know. Which, did you put horse, what, what was the ratio of horse poo? I don't know. Just cover cover your bed. Okay. If there's one thing you take away from today's show, but but she made so there's horse poo and mulch, and then um and then you put compost, and then she got the compost out, and then kind of it's like she was um panning for gold. So she's got this big Jeez. sieve type thing that she put the compost in and kind of shake it through, and then beautiful. But how soil is that soil? That? I'm so confused. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. It's just mind boggling to me. Yeah, it well, it was to me. Um, so we've been doing a lot of gardening over, you know, over the weekend. So Kat's been at the front garden building these um, garden beds because before months ago, before all this COVID nineteen shit took off, um, Kath decided <laughs> that she was she eventually um, wanted to become a a, a, a fresh cut um, flower gardener. Um, she wanted to go in the business of making, you know, selling flowers in like bouquets and 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 things like that. 
selling fresh cut flowers. So she's already started, um, you know, planting and stuff and and doing things around that. Meanwhile, I've been at the back and there's a big um, – got all these agapanthers growing in the middle of the garden. I don't know if anyone's tried to remove agapanthers before, but my Lord, like I, it is some of the most backbreaking work I've done. <laughs> I think I need to Google what an agapanther is so I know. You know, yeah, Google it because it's those big long, those long stem flowers that you see those, and they're purple or, or white um, and with a big green. Oh, yeah. And when you see them, actually, when you see them, they're always so, there's always thousands of them. So that yeah. does indicate that they're hardy. Oh, man. And it's. I got out um, one patch, like dug it out, and it took me like all day. And by all day, I mean forty-five minutes. <laughs> but it was so. Are you finding now... it soothing though? Like, are you getting something out of it that, um, you know, some people say they really enjoy being in the garden. It's like meditative. Is that not the case for you? Oh uh, yeah, but I'm just destroying something. So <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Cats, the gardening that she's doing out the front is quite meditative because she's like planting things and um, moving things around. It's a bit more peaceful. Whereas I've got an axe and I am just hacking <laughs> away this massive. Like I have, I've got an axe and I've got a pitchfork and a shovel, and I just rotate through all those three tools, just trying to get get rid of these agapanthids. I reckon it's going to take me maybe a month to do it. They're a nightmare. I've just sent you a photo, Geraldine, of um, my last uh, my last incident with agapanthers. <gasps> it, it, it gets all over you. I mean, it, it is – I, I was what coated. What all over you? This is this, this well, uh, the, the 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 dirt. I mean, it's it's just absolutely oh impossible. My. What were you doing? I was trying to pull like a panther. Describe the picture, please, for the medium of radio. It's just Daniel's face covered in dirt. Looks like he's had a dirt bomb explode in his face. Nice smile. Yeah, but it was so embarrassing. I'm like, how is this? I didn't even fall over. But I I mean, agapanthers are—I don't know—are they beautiful to some people? Maybe I don't don't know. I don't think I don't know. Whenever whenever I hear about them, it's always about people ripping them out. It's never about people (laughs) planting them. Exactly. I feel like that indicates something. We um, I've been trying to plan a winter garden. Oh, it's just been, but I don't want to go to the, I don't want to go to the sh- the big shop that we all go to to mm. buy garden things. Um, and so I just have been trying to fertilize the soil myself without any fertilizer, which I oh, it hasn't really involved me doing anything to be honest. It's just pulling things out and putting weeds down and hoping the weeds become fertilizer. Um, and then I planted Ooh. all these winter veggies the other day. Um, and I think I'm going a bit mad because then I came out on the weekend and, like, within two days of having them in the garden, the moths had come and laid oh, little mate. little things all over them. So there was already, like, these little white cabbage moth things over everything. Mm. But I have so much time on my hands that I was like, I'm not going to let the moths win. And I sat in the garden bed, like, in the dirt, 
rubbing individual tiny little leaves, killing these little moths like one by one, and and their babies one by one. And it was oh my just, God. I know it was I really like that. <laughs> it wasn't all. Yeah, it sounds weird now. I say it out loud, but um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> was, that, how, was that meditative murdering all those? <laughs> Murdering. This is the world's darkest gardening Australia segment. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's funny, like now because um, we've got little seedlings that Cass planted that are starting to grow, and it's like I get the now that I can see see little sprouts coming up and getting excited in the scene, or yeah. what else is coming up. So, you know. It's exciting. Also, you know, we've got a lot of time in our hands, mate. <laughs> yeah. we'll watch something grow. Exactly. The State Library of Victoria, usually home to 7,000 visitors a day, has been closed to the public for one month now, with its live programs and events either cancelled or postponed due to coronavirus. But Australia's oldest and busiest public library remains an emporium of knowledge for the community. And to tell us about what's on offer, we're joined by CEO of the State Library, Kate Tawney. Kate, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you. Lovely to be with you in these strange times. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, the now, the State Library just went underwent an $88.1 million redevelopment and you reopened with great fanfare and then you had to close. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, it was so disappointing, but the right thing to do. But, you know, for a library, often in times of kind of crisis, a library, whether it's the State Library or the 300 public libraries around the state, a library is often a place of sort of retreat and a, and a safe place that, you know, people can go to. So for us, it was such a big decision to close. Um, and often we're kind of supporting people who are a little bit um, uh, disenfranchised. And so it really went, went against the grain, but we know it was the right thing to do. And um, But we're not, the site isn't open, but the library is still available to people. Mm, so what's going on? So look, lots and lots is going is going on. So we have um, a huge uh, number of items in our collection that are available to people online. You can keep up with the library through all of our social channels, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or um, or Twitter. And we've got a great service, Ask a Librarian, uh, where visitors can ask you know expert staff uh, to help answer any question. Uh, whether they be research questions or anything else. And so we're up for the challenge. No question is too difficult. Um, and that's a really great service. So you can you can log on to our website or you can uh, can look for us on Facebook or, or Twitter. It's called Ask a Librarian. Any question whatsoever, we will attempt to answer. So, sorry, does that mean you do have individual librarians in a vast empty building doing, <laughs> doing this work? No, so no one is in the State Library building, um, but uh, many of us are working from home and look like every other kind of sector it's been incredible to transition so quickly into thinking through well what can we offer the public how can we best serve people right now and so we've got amazing uh, people including our librarians who are working from home and they are manning that service um, and the other the other thing that we've seen a real uptake in at the moment is family history. So we've got a massive family history collection and a huge expertise in that particular area. Um, and uh, so our, that team is really, really busy and we've seen a lot of interest in that area. So, you know, people at home and probably a bit more time on their hands and 
often people have thought about doing a family history, but now's a, time, a really good time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that Ancestry, which is a, a commercial organisation, but they have made um, their services available uh, to the library members um, during this period of time, which is really fantastic. So it's kind of been good to be able to work with different partners to say, well, it's an unusual time. What can we do together to kind of meet a demand? And the the monumental task of digitising collections is really paying for itself now, I imagine. It is. Look, our focus on digitisation like um, is to really look at the items in the collection which are exclusive to the State Library. So, you know, the, the task of digitising, as you say, is absolutely massive. Um, and we'd love to digitise everything, but that's not going to be possible. So what we've focused on over the last 10 years is really looking at the items that are exclusive to the State Library. And that is a treasure trove. It really, really is. Um, one of the things, too, that, that uh, we've um, really ramped up over the past few weeks is the online exhibition um, offerings as well. So we've got... Uh, a beautiful exhibition at the library at the moment called Velvet Iron Ashes, which is a whole lot of really beautiful, some well-known, some just really quirky Victorian stories, and they're all linked. So you can dive into to that, uh, to that exhibition experience as well as our other galleries too. Uh, and what about videos? Yeah, so look, um, we've got a, a library of, um, of video content um, and it's not only content that we've developed but it's also uh, other content as well. Um, so, you know, if you, if you log on and have a look, We've got an amazing arts collection, and that's music, it's uh, it's manuscripts, it's films, it's a whole lot of things that you would never imagine the state library might have. So I think this is a really good opportunity to remind people that that collection, which is worth around three hundred and fifty million dollars, it belongs to the people of Victoria. So much of it is available online, so we're just encouraging people in different ways um, to tap in. But the other element too is of course, this is such a moment in time. So for us, we've got to start thinking about how we collect these memories, the memories of this time, for generations to come too. And how are you doing that? So we're asking the community to think about, um, you know, how they're experiencing uh, COVID-19. And towards the end of the week, we'll be talking a little bit more about a project that we're about to launch. But we are really encouraging people to keep diaries, to take photographs of this time. My my 17-year-old on the weekend, you know, said to me, God, this is, I'm really going to be telling my grandchildren about this, aren't I? And I think as you're living it, you might not kind of recognise how massive this is as a moment in history. So we're asking people to not only collect the obvious, which are posters and flyers and mail-outs and all of those things that are appearing in their local neighbourhoods, like even the notes that you're getting from the kids in the streets, you know, um, that are kind of uplifting and offering to help you, etc. Those things are really nice, but we also want people to think about how they are capturing their own memories. And as I say, that's, you know, that's about... um, thinking about today you know when your kids are going back to school capture that tonight you know it'd be great Mm. to have both video audio and written material about what it's like to live through this and what are you missing about going in every day 
Oh, I miss the people. I miss my colleagues. So any listening, hello, I miss you. Um, and look, you know, how lucky are we at the State Library to work in that beautiful building? It's such an amazing building. It's hard to have a bad day at the office when you're, you know, under that dome. So um, we desperately miss the, the building. But I also just miss the visitors. You know, you walk through that space and so diverse. You've got people from all walks of life. And, and I miss that. I really miss that. And what does the government say about when you can reopen? So we're, like other uh, cultural institutions in Victoria, we are closed until at least June 30. Um, and, you know, we, we, as a library, as I said, you know, we really are there to serve people. So we want to reopen as soon as we possibly can, but we are absolutely working with government to ensure that that's at a time where it's safe to do so. Um, so, you know, by closing, we know we're doing our small bit to, to help stop the spread. And, you know, with 7,000 people a day um, in the library, we do understand that that matters. Um, so while we'd love to open the doors as soon as we possibly can, we're not going to do so until the health authorities and government tell us that it's safe to do so. Are you, mm -hmm. are you expecting, well, like, an influx of, of people at the end of all of this as well? Because I know that a lot of friends uh, who don't often read as much as they would are suddenly reading, you know, voracious readers. Is that what you're anticipating when the doors do open again? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, we're already seeing that. And one of the things we've got online too is uh, our recommendations. So lots of our, my colleagues and I are just recommending the things that we're reading. And for me, that has been uh, the stellar long and short list. And that was announced last night. So Jess Hill's book, uh, See What uh, You Made Me Do, won the Stellar Award last night. But we're already seeing a real uptake in, in reading, um, which is absolutely sensational. So, um, you know, when the doors reopen, uh, we want to make sure that we continue that and kind of continue to encourage that because that's been one of the one of the benefits, I reckon, a bit of slowdown, a bit of kind of returning to the things that you usually might think that you don't have time for, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just quickly, what do you have on your pandemic reading list? So actually, as I say, I've just done the stellar shortlist. So uh, Jess's, Jess's book is the book that I'm reading at the moment, and it's a um, it's a book about domestic violence in Australia, um, and it is just extraordinary. It's the first journalistic book to win the Stella, so that's um, that's I really loved that. And look, you know, it's, lots of people kind of uh, um, don't know where to start when they're kind of revisiting reading. The Stella, I just cannot um, recommend enough that as a great place to start because there's all sorts of books. And they're guaranteed to be, you know, absolutely fantastic. So, um, so the Stella shortlist has been my thing for the for the past sort of uh, month or so. Uh, Kate, also, um, a lot of parents out there are going to be doing some homeschooling today. You got any hot tips for them? <laughs> oh God, I, I need hot tips. <laughs> I so need hot tips. Um, I just think we all need to be patient. I, got, I was really sad. I read an email from the principal of my son's school last night and she was just pleading for patience and, you know, just reminding us that they're doing the best that they can. I just want to say to principals and school teachers, you are amazing, absolutely incredible to kind of learn how to go online so quickly. So to parents out there, please be patient. That email made me think that she must have had a whole lot of complaints and cranky parents. So I just think um, we've all got to be patient <laughs> mm. but uh, maybe students get out of their robes 
<laughs> Starting in this house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well, you can stay connected with the library on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and the website is slv.vic.gov.au. And we've been chatting with CEO Kate Tawney. Thanks so much, Kate. Thanks so much. Bye, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Yesterday, the High Court unanimously ruled that the warrant relied on by the Australian Federal Police to raid the home of News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst was invalid and the raid therefore unlawful. And uh, to bring us up to speed on the story and the latest ruling, we're joined by Alice Drury, Senior Lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre. Alice, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, guys, for having me. Um, Can you walk us through what happened at the High Court yesterday? Yeah, sure. So the High Court yesterday, as you said, unanimously um, found that the warrant that the police relied on to raid Annika Smethurst's home midway through last year was invalid. Um, Basically, to break it down, the court said that the police did a really botched job of getting this warrant. So they said that it didn't, you know, um, accurately explain what it was that the police were searching for and nor did it with a degree of specificity um, state what the offence was that is the reason why Annika Smethurst was being um, raided in the first place. So they they found the warrant to be invalid. Unfortunately that doesn't mean that the materials seized under the warrant couldn't still be used in a prosecution against Annika Smethurst. Uh, certainly doesn't mean that she can't still be prosecuted. And there was another basis for um, the High Court decision, which was that the underlying offence itself, which was a secrecy offence, was inconsistent with the Constitution. That is, it was unconstitutional because, and I hate saying this phrase because it's so lengthy, but it was inconsistent with the implied freedom of political communication, which is kind of a fancy way of saying undermined free speech, which is um, a freedom that we have in Australia. Uh, The court, unfortunately, didn't decide on that last point because they said, well, you know, we've made a decision on the warrant. The warrant was invalid. We don't need to go any further. So it's a Funny decision. It's a kind of semi-win, I suppose, um, for Anarchist Methods. It certainly shows what a sloppy job the police did, um, but it doesn't really resolve any of the underlying issues with the law, which allowed the raid to happen in the first place. Uh, to me, mm. that almost doesn't make sense that the... Uh, maybe you could explain this a little bit, how the warrant could be invalid, but the what was obtained by the police in the search can still be used in evidence. How are those two things... How can they coexist? Yeah, unfortunately. So this is probably the most complex part of the judgment and there's so many different kind of facets of it. Um, but to to break it down to its simplest, the court said that there's still a public interest um, in seeing if this prosecution is going to happen and it's still in the public interest to basically to allow justice to take its course. And so with, with the technicality, where I mean, was this a technicality and where to from here? I mean, I'm reluctant to call it a technicality because if the police are um, are raiding your home, it's a really fundamental safeguard that they explain to you why. Um, so it's not a kind of, you know, technicality that's insignificant. Uh, but it, this decision doesn't go to the heart of the issues here. And the heart of the issues here are that we have laws in this country that criminalise 
journalism and whistleblowing in some circumstances. Um, and the laws that the, the crimes that Annika Smithist was raided for um, and that the whistleblower is being prosecuted for uh, have now been, they're no longer law, they've been amended, but they've been made worse. Um, so we're on a trajectory that's even darker. Um, but things are getting worse in Australia when it comes to journalism and whistleblowing. And that's the kind of main thing that Australians should keep their eye on. That's We've got to keep our eye on the prize and, and that's the sort of, they're the laws that need urgent reform. Mm. How was the law made worse? So new secrecy offences were introduced into the criminal code um, and they did, there was a, a big law reform report into why we should have secrecy offences, how they should apply, um, and essentially the new offences didn't comply with those recommendations. Um, they're still overly broad, they're still vague, uh, and perhaps most troubling of all, there were also new offences introduced um, for espionage, but they've made the definition of espionage so broad that uh, it could include reporting and journalism um, that brings Australia into international disrepute. Um, and that can attract a, a prison sentence of upwards of 20 years. So it's the reforms have been... Um, generally poor and pretty broad reaching. I should probably add with the secrecy offences after a big push and a big backlash uh, from journalists, they did introduce a defence, which is where you're um, reporting in the public interest. But that defence doesn't apply in other circumstances, including the new espionage offence, which I mentioned, which is by far the most serious offence. Where has the support for these changes come from? Has it been bipartisan? It has been bipartisan, which is extremely disappointing, um, it, and it's because it's always described in the context of national security. So it seems that neither party are willing to be weak on quote-unquote national security, and it's just often taken as an opportunity to, um, you know, extend the capability of government to shut down scrutiny. And that's what we're seeing as an, an increasing trend in Australia. They are prosecuting whistleblowers who've come out with really, really important stories um, and they're really clamping down particularly on any information that comes out of you know our intelligence services or defense so if there's wrongdoing happening in our intelligence services or our, in our defense force there's basically no way that that can be made public and what's the human rights law center's best case scenario for these issues and freedom of the press in this context yeah so there's quite a few reforms that we've recommended on the back of this. The first and foremost, I suppose, is that we need to protect whistleblowers. Um, you know, it's really important to protect journalists, of, of course, uh, but often, you know, it's, it's rare that police go after journalists, whereas it's quite common for police now to go after whistleblowers and to intimidate whistleblowers. And we do have some protections for whistleblowers, but not enough when they come public or go to a journalist. Um, and the way to blow the whistle without going public is quite difficult. It's very murky. It's very easy to get wrong, and it's ultimately quite dissatisfactory. We also say that, you know, if you're protecting whistleblowers, of course, you should also then be protecting journalists. Um, so we should have 
We, we should basically rewrite the laws that criminalise journalism so that they no longer are on the books. Uh, and then we also have asks around surveillance. So increasingly, um, in parallel to this kind of um, whistleblower journalism issue, we have an increasing trend of surveillance in Australia, uh, and that's typically digital surveillance. And so as the government can increasingly trace our movements and our contacts through, for instance, our metadata, they can do that to all of us, but they can also do that to journalists. Um, so it's a sort of, it's a multi-pronged approach that we're taking to this issue. Quite a few mm. things thrown up by the raids. As you say, it is an issue being fought on a few fronts. Um, how important is public sentiment in this and what is the biggest obstacle to changing it? Public sentiment is everything. It always is when it comes to changes to the law. Um, and I think it's a matter of putting pressure on both the major parties to be better on this. And now is a really, really crucial time. You know, in, in the context of COVID-19, this doesn't all magically stop. Um, we don't all of a sudden have a perfectly free press. You know, it's not the case that whistleblowers will no longer be prosecuted. But also, in fact, some things like surveillance are being ramped up and that's mass surveillance over all of us. Um, police powers are, you know, really broad and um, it, they're far more powerful than they were just a few weeks ago. Um, and this case is a perfect example of why we need to remain vigilant about checks and balances, democratic oversight, because in this case the police did do a botched job and they were investigating a crime that shouldn't even be on the books. Um, and it's just it's just a reminder that now more than ever, now more even than when the raids happened, the public has to be really on this and demanding better and demanding government scrutiny and transparency and oversight, um, which unfortunately I'm saying all of this at a time when the, you know, Federal Parliament has been suspended. Um, regular parliamentary sittings have been suspended until August, which is a total of five months, which is completely out of step with the rest of the world. And most states have followed suit. So New South Wales Parliament isn't going to sit until September. Victoria doesn't have any dates set down for regular parliamentary sittings. Um, so while I'm telling you that the concerns that we have for... Australian democracy and the implications of police powers and mass surveillance are higher than ever before. Our major, our main sort of democratic oversight is has been suspended. Mm. So while the world slows down, it sounds like you're getting a bit busier. It's been a busy time. It has, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and what what can we look for next in this saga? I think everybody will be watching um, to see what the police do next if they do proceed with the investigation and ultimately a prosecution of Anarchist Methurst. Um, the same for the two ABC journos who came out with the Afghan files who were raided the day after her. Uh, I think, you know, it's only a matter of time before another brave whistleblower comes forward and exposes government wrongdoing uh, and the question is what will happen to them. Um and then, as I mentioned, the issues of mass surveillance, which everybody should be on top of because it applies to all of us, um, which is the, you know, one measure of which is this 
app that's been announced um, modelled on the Singaporean app Trace Together. So there's a few things that we're watching for. The main things that we should be calling for is a stop to these mass surveillance measures, um, potentially like with the exception of the response to the pandemic, um, but we need transparency oversight. They need to stop the moment that the crisis is over. But we should also be looking for a commitment from the government and and well, both major parties that they're going to actually change the laws um, and strengthen our freedom of the press in Australia. Yeah. Okay. Well, Senior Lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, Alice Drury, thanks so much for chatting with us. Thanks so much, guys. Triple R. Sean Birdman Dooley is on the line at home, twitching in isolation. Birdman, hello. Ah, uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good, good to talk to you. It is indeed. It's, it sounds quite idyllic where you are. Yes, yes. I'm out in my backyard uh, doing the uh, doing the birding at home thing. There's actually a big, there's a whole lot of online uh, community gathering together in all sorts of places around the world. Uh, around that birding at home because when you're in isolation or in lockdown, um, I, I'm finding sort of hearing the birds in the morning and, and being able to, you know, luckily I've got a backyard and we get a few birds and just being able to connect to that, it, it's it's almost bittersweet because it's reminding me of all the all the places and all that I can't get to and all the birds I can't see. Mm-hmm. But it is a taste and I think a lot of people are finding this. It's, it's a connection with the world it's not it's hearing that bird song it's like it, it's it's sort of this in in the past in, like the ancient romans and that thought the birds brought the messages from the gods from the outside world like uh, the, the norse god had uh, odin had the two ravens that used to come and fly around the world and then the next next day just land on o- odin and tell him what had been going on and it's a bit like that these days it's this, you know, you hear the birds and you know that there's a world going on out there still, that the, mm. you know, the, the earth's still turning and um, things are still happening outside. And I think people are really connecting with that. So right around the world, there's this big backyard birding movement at, at where people are sharing what they're seeing. So hopefully just before we went to air, we had uh, our resident magpies were here um, caroling mm. away. So hopefully they might fire up again and give your listeners a taste of Aussie magic. <laughs> yeah, it really well, does. Well, birds. Sorry, go. No, I was wondering. Yeah, well, it it does sound uh, as Jesse was about to say, busy in the air. Do birds know what's going on on some level? <laughs> yeah, there's. I've done a bit of media in the last couple of weeks. People are freaking out because they think the birds are going crazy too. They think the birds <laughs> know something. And what it is when when you drill down to. Oh, yes. Aww. All right. It's my turn to shine. <laughs> um, when what I think what's happening when I hear, like, I've done some radio talkback and uh, when people tell me what these crazy birds are doing, it's actually what they do all the time. And it's just that uh, we're, we're not moving. We're, we're actually paying more attention to what's going on in our own backyards, literally. We're not, you know... We're at home all day and seeing the rhythms of nature or hearing them. And um, so people are noticing things more, I think. And Australian birds are a bit nuts. Like they, they, they are really, 
really wild. They're garrulous. They're they're kind of gregarious. That they they make lots of crazy noises. And you've got these soap operas happening every morning outside your door that we normally don't notice because we're either in it in at the office or in at school or wherever. Mm. And we're seeing it, but also. Things are a lot more quiet. Generally, there's less traffic noise. Oh, I've just had six galahs fly over me. It's, uh, uh, it's, I should do these always for <laughs> live recording. Um, but, yeah, so there's not much, not as much traffic noise in industry and things like that. And so the birds actually sound louder than normal, I think. I think a lot of people are noticing bird call for the first time because we're not, we're not being drowned out by, by our everyday lives. Mm. And are the birds in your neighbourhood spoiled? <laughs> well, I think they've got quite spoiled a few eyeballs on them. And <laughs> the, the um, yeah, certainly these magpies that come into our yard must be being fed by the neighbours because uh, as, so- as soon as we moved in, they were up and calling for singing for their supper and tapping on the window if we didn't give them any food. So, <laughs> so I, I suspect uh, we. A, and this is what we suspect. The research shows that between a third to half of Australians um, feed native birds at, at some point. Usually it's magpies, sometimes kookaburras or things like butcher birds. But um, we know that there are millions and millions of people who connect with nature by feeding birds. And, and there's a lot of ways, you know, a lot of bad things you can do when you feed birds. But if you, if you feed them nutritionally good food and you make sure you clean the area where they feed so you don't get different types of birds coming in and that normally wouldn't mingle and spreading disease, then really it's not doing too much harm to the birds. They don't need it. It's sort of for for our birds, like we don't have cold, harsh winters. So um, when you feed a bird, it's not like you're, people worry that the birds will become dependent. That's not true at all. They're, they're probably coming to about 10 different houses in the neighbourhood to feed. <laughs> and, they're, and, and they've also, yeah... See, the magpies concur with that one. <laughs> and they, um, they, they also, uh, like, basically, rather than, you're not giving them their main meal of the day, you, you're essentially just giving them a cup of tea and a biscuit on top of what they would normally eat during the day. So it, it can be done safely. And it, really, the benefit is for people, not so much the birds. And it, it's a great way to connect with nature. What are some of the safe ways you feed a magpie? Like if you if you're going to feed a magpie, what am I not feeding them, and what am I feeding them? Well, I I reckon the rule of thumb is uh, basically as you would try to feed your children, um, don't don't give them junk, <laughs> don't give them crap, avoid people things. People give them stuff like bacon and uh, you know sausage rolls and things like that. That's just a whole lot of fat they don't need and a whole lot of salt and. Uh, in the past, mince was always recommended, but it turns out mint, mint, mince meat is not so great because um, because of the balance of the nutrients in it. Um, because normally, when a magpie or, or a butcher bird or anything like that would be feeding, they're eating like a worm or a beetle or something. They're getting uh, all the different parts of the animal, and they they get sort of trace elements like phosphorus and calcium and things. And with mincemeat, you only get one of those. I, I think it's, I think you get the calcium, but not the phosphorus or, or vice versa. And that's actually not that good for them. And also the meat is a bit sticky and it can stick in the corner of their beaks and they, and they can get, it starts to get infected. Um, so if you're going to give them meat, it's best to cut them 
like what what I do is, you know, if we have any scraps from when we're preparing dinner, we keep that and throw them that out to them. Uh, but also, you can get these commercial blends um, of of bird food. There's a couple of companies that do it now, and they have the 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 meat, the carnivore mix. But if you don't want to go to that expense, you can if you've uh, I've been told by the experts that you can actually feed them good quality dog food because that's balanced um, nutritionally for your animals. It's not designed for birds as such, but it's good enough that it's it's not going to do them much harm. Um, and they tend to say use the dry dog food, preferably because the same issue with the mints, it means that the food won't get caught on its um, in the side of its beak and also they won't sort of leave a mess everywhere, except, you know, trying to get magpies to eat dried dog biscuits, uh, like good luck to you there, champ. I <laughs> can't even get my dog to eat them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And are the rules on birding uh, uniform across Australia or are there different rules if you're a birder in different states? <laughs> uh, rules in what sense? Well, uh, you know, guidelines that Twitches are following right now. Yeah. Um, I, I, in terms of, uh, like, it, it's a it's an interesting one. I would argue that, uh, that getting out and doing bird surveys is an essential service and uh, that, you know, and it's good exercise and you, you can do it alone. However, um, you know, the guidelines, of, we've been looking into this uh, for at BirdLife Australia. We've had to put a halt to some of our ongoing monitoring, which is a real shame because especially in bushfire areas and other bits of our conservation work, if, um, you know, it's really important that we keep uh, maintaining that uh, so that we can respond to the need. You would argue that, you know, if, if you're going out for a walk locally, if you're not driving too far or using facilities in national parks, then it should be okay, especially if you're doing... Oh, you're cutting out a bit, Birdman. Uh, you've got to stand still closer to something. You cut out. He's not there. He's gone. He dropped out. He's there? ...to different places. Oh, I'm here. Yeah, I'm, I'm still going. <laughs> Well, you, oh, you, and, you uh, dropped out for the last of that, Birdman. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah. That's so are you able to maybe, I don't know if you're wandering around, maybe stand still? No, no. No? Still, All right, okay. Just sitting, just sitting. It's obviously the uh, the fabulous uh, uh, communications infrastructure that this country has. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, if, if, if people are, there's a couple of things people can do where um, there's some social media hashtags that you can share what you're seeing. And those hashtags include uh, birding at home or BirdLife Australia's got one. We're asking people to have a couple, hashtag couple with the birds uh, and share what you see. Just go out every morning and, and tell us what you're seeing. Send a photo. Uh, also, there's, there's a, a classic site set up by someone in Melbourne called bird the feck at home and it's going all around the world where people are sharing the lists of their birds in their backyards and it's actually right around the world uh bird watchers have seen more than a fifth of the world's species to over two thousand different species in their backyards and if, if you're wanting to contribute to citizen science the uh birds in backyards project that BirdLife australia run have a uh, it's actually their autumn survey so you can uh, go online at birds in backyards and and set up your surveys and you can report what you're seeing in your backyard and that's going to a national database to work out 
how our urban birds are faring as part of a, a scientific program that's been going for about 15 years. All right. Can't keep a birder down. Um, <laughs> Sean, thanks very much, and uh, we'll let you get back to it and uh, talk again soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. Stay thanks. safe. Triple. Oh. Mystery Road, becoming the most watched show on iView ever for non-children programs, winning the Actor for Best Television Drama Series and last year's Logie for Most Popular Drama Program. Now it's back for Season 2 with Aaron Pedersen reprising his role as Detective Jay Swan posted to a new town investigating crime in the Kimberley. And co-directing this season is Wayne Blair, award-winning director of The Sapphires and the actor, writer and, of course, director, joins us now. Wayne, welcome to Breakfasters. Ah, oh, thanks for having me, guys. And our our so pleasure. Um, now you you acted in the first season, and now you're on the other side of the camera. What what's that transition been like? Um, yeah, that's well, sort of easy. Um, yeah, I liked I enjoyed being in the first season. It's much it's much easier being an actor, to be honest. I enjoy it. Um, um, I enjoy both, but it's sometimes it's easier. Um, but this time in director, you got to work twenty four seven. So um, <laughs> around the clock on the weekends, etc., and you're just thinking about it constantly. But um, no, it was it was great. You know, you know, I've just been blessed with this show. It's um, yeah, it's it's really good to be honest. Because also you, you know, you're in the original stage production of the Sapphires, and then you di- went yeah. on to direct that. Is that? It seems like a pretty unique niche you've got to. to to know a text inside out and then get on the other side of it. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're in the sort of the belly of the beast, and when you do a project or a story two or three times, that's when you really, I reckon, you can take advantage of it, and then you can sort of, hopefully, you can you can sort of wring something else out of it that what didn't exist in the first place, and it just sort of sits inside your little spirit a little bit more, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a show like Mystery Row, just to be an actor in it, so to sort of know the ethos of it, you know. As you're saying, and sort of just to be around it in a sort of a, in a satellite in that world around this character of Jace Wan is, is yeah, it's pretty it's pretty beneficial. Uh, yeah, and I I heard uh, Mystery Road described as uh, what tropical gothic in feel. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you capture that as a director? Well, Warwick Thornton was sort of um, like our setup director, and Warwick's one of my best mates, and we co-directed it together. Um, it was his framework, basically. It's Wallet Thornton's brain and blueprint. And I suppose you sort of um, you have a few rules at the outset. And it's sort of fun to have a few rules. Like, you know, we're going to shoot a lot of scenes at night or in every shot we see outdoor, we see sprinklers or everyone's backlit, backlit silhouettes. And, you know, at night you've still got your car headlights on. It's like they're, they're sort of small and minute. But to get that tropical gothic, we sort of just went a little bit more brave. And we just sort of said less is more. I suppose less coverage, less lighting. Um, everyone wants to be sweet. You know, when you go out to those, I don't know if you've ever been to Broome, you know, Kananara, where we were the first time, it's just everyone's sweating. So just everyone's <laughs> sweat up. So to get that real tropical gothic feel, I mean, Warwick sort of set the blueprint on the framework and we just, it was just easy to follow, really, mm, with a few simple rules. For those that might not have seen um, season one or those that have and are just interested in what's going to happen, are you able to set up season two for us a little bit? Yeah, it's like, well, so Jace Wan's this sort of archaic, fractured sort of Clint Eastwood-Eskian cop, you know, and it's sort of, he just sort of, he, he goes from town to town to solve cases, but he brings this fractured sort of brooding, sort of good-looking, you know, blackfella quality. He sort of doesn't give a, you know, doesn't give a, you know, two hoots, but he's really respectful in the same breath. And you go, when you see that touch of humanity and warmth, you go, oh, my God, I just want to be around this guy, you know. 
So that's that's where it starts. But he encounters, a, you know, a sort of a major, major murder at that town, um, and it sort of involves the people around that town and sort of, uh, you know, the, the sort of shady people, but people that are fractured in our society, and which usually most of us are. But I suppose there's a heightened sense of drama, and you know, in these in these shows. And, you know, it's a show that's sort of, he's a cowboy detective in the northwest of the Kimberleys, you know. So you go to a place or a country in, in our country that sort of no one's sort of seen before, so it's so, so bloody expensive to get to. Mm. In the first series, we're at Kununurra, and the only other film that sort of shot there for a while was, you know, Baz's Australia. They were there for seven weeks and built that homestead. And now we're in the northwest Kimberley, like in Broome, and, you know, and around Broome and Derby, and a place called Lombardina. Um, so sort of if you haven't been to those places, um, you know, tune on Sunday night because that geography of the place is a, is a big character in the world of Mystery Road, you know. What kind of challenges, or if any, were there in filming somewhere more remote like that? Um, uh, challenges is, is basically what I said to get there, you know, with the <laughs> fares and all that sort of palaver. But, you know, once you're there, it's sort of, like the challenges, it's like anywhere, just sort of getting the community on side, you know, and just getting that town on side just to support you. Because film crews can come in and just wreck a place, um, you know, and people that go into Indigenous communities in the past, we, our country has a history of, you know, um, um, usurping. Um, you know, so you sort of got to get the balance right. And when you're sort of just going to say, hey, well, it's a story that we can, you can take ownership. And usually what you do as well, I suppose, you just sort of sit there. And we went, well, you know, when you're sort of setting up a place, you sort of get, got to get the trust of the community and give them ownership. And it's a lot about, you know, and it's also about like, um, you know, hiring people from that area, not, you know, because people have got the bloody skills. And that's the sort of the main thing. That's, that's one of the big challenges. But like, it's not really a challenge, it's really it's what you do. Um, uh, I suppose the other thing is to sort of like, it's just sort of trying to suit, in, in Australian TV, it's just having where art meets commerce, where you try to shoot these bloody ambitious, you know, moments or scenes and sequences in the time frame allotted. So that's when, you know, you sort of have to work it out. And when, when, when you're shooting less is more, like um, Warwick sort of did, it sort of, that's, you know, it, 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 it comes to your service and that's even, even better. So you just got to go, okay, let's do it, you know. But yeah, uh, talking about balance, I, in, obviously the you know the show is a you know a bit of a heavy drama, but there are some genuinely laugh out loud moments in this. It's very some of it is very funny. I'm interested to know what was life like on set when the the cameras weren't on. Did, did everyone kind of have a good time? A lot of good laughs. Yeah, you know, like, uh, it's one of the best filming experiences of my life, like, I suppose, in the sense of the, the relaxed nature. But because um, I've known Warwick, um, the A-camera operator was Jules, who worked on sort of our films as a focus puller, but she was the first time she was operating a camera. Warwick's son was B-camera operator in second unit. Uh, a lot of the people, Heather Wallace did Sweet Country, did Top End Wedding, you know, was the costume person. John, like you know, everyone basically we knew, you know, so we worked before. So there's that relaxed family atmosphere. So you can cut to the chase. You can be a little bit more brave. Everyone knows where you stand straight away. You can, you know, you can turn up to set a little bit shady, and you know, everyone knows you sort of where you're at, or you haven't paid your rent the day before, so you're a little bit pissed off. So you go, hey, step away from Wayne this day, or step away from work, <laughs> yeah. and then you just get into it. You know what I mean? Just get into it, and you can make those. You can be more confident to be wrong. And, you, and it's just, it was one of the best sets, I thought. And Aaron, we've known for 20 years, Warwick and Aaron are family. So you're sort of mucking around on set, paying each other out constantly. 
but when there was to be had, it's sort of just get into it. Yeah, so it was. It wasn't like a fun. Like everyone was cracking jokes every like five minutes, but there was just a relaxed nature that we're all in this sort of. It sounds wanky, but we're all in this together. But not that. It sort of sounds like we're just doing it, you know. We're just doing a job, but shit, we're a bit more relaxed about doing it. But we're not. We're we're still on the front foot because you're just loving it. It's, I think you just because you relax because you're loving it, and you're sort of in a place that's absolutely brilliant. And you work with people that you've known for twenty years. How mm. good, you know? And the the show had its world premiere at Berlin Film Festival. Does that seem like a lifetime ago? Yeah, it seems obviously pre-corona, but um, yeah, it does. I mean, you know, when you show your, you know, when you show your sort of story, you know, you know, Blackfellow story, Australian story, any festival, you're pretty privileged. I remember going to that place sort of 15, 16 years ago with a short. Um, and, you know, Warwick had his short over there too. So, you know, you just go, oh, I'm in Berlin. And this time it was sort of like, it was sort of, we stayed at this sort of hotel, you know, near sort of Checkpoint Charlie that was sort of a little bit run down, but we sort of loved it. You know, you're in your little lobby at your hotel, having a quiet beer at the bar, you're walking downtown a little bit. It was it was fantastic. And then, you know, we hear the news that, oh, there's this country called Italy that sort of, that everyone's getting this corona, but people are still travelling there. I said, well, oh, should we go to Italy? No, 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 we'll just go straight home, you know. <laughs> but of course, um, you didn't realise how big it was going to be. But um, yeah, everyone was still doing their thing. But yeah, that was just pre-corona, and that was that was pretty special too. It was nice. Yeah, wow. And and just this is my little hobby horse. But you appeared in Wildside, and I want Wildside to be reappreciated <laughs> and reintroduced as part of the golden age of television. Do, do you agree? Am I putting rose-coloured glasses on this, or was Wildside not absolutely brilliant? But, yeah, it's it's. But it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It sort of was one of those forgotten ones. It was sort of like, you know, L.A. Law was in the 90s. I'm not saying it's L.A. Law. But you know those shows that just get missed and they sort of set the precedent, but everyone just forgets a little bit? Wildside is like that in the zeitgeist of Australia. But, you know, with Tony Martin and, of course, Aaron Pedersen was that, you know, and the way it was shot and the way they they sort of just went for it a little bit, you know, and I suppose I was in, yeah, I, I remember having two or three scenes and I've still got that shot when it comes up, you know, oh, this is me 20 years ago, this is me 13 years ago. <laughs> that shot is there. It's a great shot. It's a sort of still on the camera. But, yeah, it was it was pretty special. You know, you could do what you want. And I had three cameras shooting it, so you know what I mean. It was, and that's what sort of Andrew Keyes, yeah, anyway, yeah, it's great. Well, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. I, I just, I just want to quickly touch on the idea of mysteries and the mechanics of making a mystery. Uh, and you know, if that's difficult, you know, staying one step ahead of the audience, but not confusing them and, you know, and, and your, the role of mystery in your life, maybe even growing up. Yeah. Oh, look, uh, that correlations, uh, I have to think about that, Daniel, for a second about the mystery in my life. But yeah, I suppose you sort of, when you're living in the moment, you know, I suppose you've sort of got to sort of stay in the moment when you're sort of 20 pages ahead of yourself in that book, you read to the end, it sort of spoils it. It takes, uh, it takes the immediacy out of it, I suppose. But in the, in the, in the artifice of the mystery, um, what I have found, um, in making it as a story, I suppose, is, um, I don't know, you sort of just got to, you shoot your sequences and you sort of, you, you have that option when you're shooting, you know these important scenes or important sequences with characters that are a little bit laid and have another side to them, a Jekyll and Hyde side to them. So you just sort of just a constant and all the time. And as you're during shooting, you give yourself a few more options than you would in a normal scene, I suppose. Mm. And usually that act is sort of protecting it. And sometimes they're overly protective of their character and the journey of their character, and they don't see it. So you have to sort of politely suggest to them that 
you know, we can go a little bit further with this. So it's a, it, it is, it's, it's sort of like you're testing the waters a little bit in those mystery moments of what you give away and what you shoot. But, um, you know, the scripts are pretty fantastic. So you sort of have to stick to those and then you sort of have your own take. It, it is a little bit weird because then you're in the edit going, oh, my, we should have got this, we should have got that. But um, it, it, I found like, you know, I, I know it's, without, without giving the plot away, where this show goes in four, five, and six, I'd be curious to find out what people think because um, it, it's just it's, it's it's a little bit more sort of um, there's a little bit more stakes involved here in, in a weird way. That'll make sense in about seven weeks. <laughs> cool. uh, well, it is ideal viewing in a time of lockdown. Mystery Road returns to the ABC and iView this Sunday at eight thirty, and we've been speaking with its uh, co-director Wayne Blair. Thanks heaps, Wayne. Uh, thanks, team. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.